Welcome to Halacha and Values Class 2. This is a recreation of the class given at Young Israel Sharon on Tuesday night, November 8th, 2022. Unfortunately, the recording of the original class uh, did not come out, so I'm recreating it here. Um, the purpose of this class is to follow the outline of my book, Divine Will and Human Experience, uh, chapter by chapter, but to present the material in different ways or to present supplementary material. In the first class, we uh, addressed freedom as a meta-value of halakha and as a value through which halakha should be interpreted. And we mentioned that a specific illustration of that is the way in which we handle um, aguna cases. So we're going to be talking about a, a specific of hilchot uh, igun this week. But I want to start by addressing a much broader theme. Uh, the title of my book is Divine Will and Human Experience, and that uh, asserts that human experience affects halakha, that halakha generally needs to be understood uh, through the filter and in light of human experience. And just as in the in making an argument for the centrality of freedom, we have to deal with the obvious counterexamples, Eved Ivri, Eved Knani, and uh, the whole phenomenon of a binding legal system. So in the realm, uh, in the claim that uh, halakha is... Um, affected by human experience, so we have to deal with what I think, at least in certain segments of orthodoxy, is the apparent obvious counterexample, which is a uh, what uh, remarks that um, Rav Yosef Joe Soloveitchik uh, gave to Reed's Rabbinical Alumni in 1975, uh, published on uh, trans- transcript published in various places, I think uh, most recently and fully on tartarweb.org. Uh, the context of the speech was um, the Rav objecting to a proposal by Rabbi Emanuel Rachman, uh, of, um, of uh, to solve good issues, in the context of which Rabbi Rachman made claims about the inapplicability of certain halachot in the Gemara based on the chazaka of Tavla Metav Tandu, which we'll, we'll call it a chazaka, but not the Gemara. Um, does. Talamaitav Tandu Mimaitav Armalta means that a woman is better off married to anyone than to sit as a widow. Um, and the Rav says this about uh, about that Chazaka. I should note that um, Joe Weinstein uh, pointed out that on a, um, on a on a Wayu Torah recording, uh, Rav Herschel Schechter suggested that perhaps the Rav made the claim we're going to read only about that chazaka of Tavlametav originally and then expanded it to all chazakot. Um, I think it's just, you know, the I'm not interested tonight really in discussing Tavlametav Tandu in depth. That's been done by many others. Um, so I'm just going to read the words. Right? The words in, in the transcription uh, are not only the uh, halachos, but also the chazakos, the halachos, but the chazakos, uh, which Chachme Chazal introduced are indestructible. We, not, we must not tamper not only with the halachos, but even with the chazakos. And here's the key line. For the chazakos, which Chazal spoke of, rest not upon transient psychological and behavioral patterns, but upon permanent ontological principles rooted in the very depth of the human personality, in the metaphysical human personality, which is as changeless as the heavens above. Let us take, for instance, let's take as an example, the chazaka, for instance, of tablamaitav tamamaitav armadu. Tablamaitav tandu minamaitav armadu has absolutely nothing to do with the social and political status of the women in, t- in antiquity. The Chazaka is based not upon sociological factors, but upon a verse in Bereshis, 
I'm skipping a little. It is a metaphysical curse rooted in the feminine personality. She suffers incomparably more than the male while in solitude. Um, and no legislation can alleviate the pain of a single woman. No legislation can change this role. She was burdened with that by the Almighty after she violated the first law. And let me ask you a question. We should start modifying and reassessing the Chazakos upon which a multitude of Halachos rests. We will destroy Yadus. Instead of philosophizing, let us rather light a match and set fire to the base Yisrael. We will get rid of all problems. Okay, I don't think there's any uh, point in denying that in the context of this speech, the Rav makes the claim that um, much of Halacha is based on Chazakos that make claims about the human, about human experience a priori and are not alterable in light of human experience, and that seems diametrically opposed to my thesis. Now, I should point out, and this has been pointed out by, um, by many others, that uh, I saw it most recently in a comment by Dr. Tzvi Zahavi, I think, after the transcript was published in the Jewish Link, that it's possible to grant the Rav's supposition and yet not see it as in any way in conflict with uh, any halachic claims by halacha, because the chazaka can be eternal, but the way in which the chazaka applies can be affected by circumstances, by other circumstances, um, by economic circumstances, by uh, technological circumstances, all those ways can, all those things can change the way in which human, the uh, permanent features of human personality play out in the real world. Um, but I want to um, directly just address the question of whether chazakos are impervious um, to human experience. I should say, it's about right, that if you think about what the halakha of Talmud of Tandu is really supposed to do, so I'm just telegraphing, that's not the purpose of this shir, uh, Talmud of Tandu is, uh, somebody asked in the context of the original shir, uh, why do we need chazakos at all? Why don't we just evaluate um, people individually as opposed to based on ontological claims about human nature as a whole, since presumably the, you know, the individuals are different, and even if your claim is an ontological feature you know, but that still will play out differently in every human being, uh, so the answer is that Talmud of Tandu is um, used to predict how people would react in hypothetical situations which they didn't actually face. It's a way of 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 constructing uh, people's bargaining positions in the right um, for the cases that they didn't explicitly discuss and aren't covered by the contract that they agreed to. Okay. Um, what I what I want to do um, tonight is start just by building a case around a different halacha Udun that is also based on uh, on chazakas, and then just. You know, having studied that halacha, let's try and see whether that's compatible at all with the thesis the Rav articulates in this speech. And if it's not, then I think it will demonstrate that, in fact, the thesis that human experience is essential um, is correct. And then you can have your own, uh, well, you can talk briefly about what the Rav might have meant. Then having established that, I want to talk about the, um, the, what that, that chazaka in general teaches us about halacha, and then having done that, I want to talk about the way in which Rav Moshe Feinstein specifically applies it. And I think Rav Moshe's understanding of it um, will 
be a good example of the way in which freedom is evaluated within halakha, uh, granting that the freedom of Agenot is not necessarily generalizable to all sorts of freedom. Okay, so Mishni of Amos uh, 15.1 says the following. Uh, if a woman and her husband went abroad, if there was peace between them and peace in the world, uh, we'll have to define those terms as we go on, and she comes to Bacon and says, my husband died, right? so they, they go abroad um, they go abroad still married, and um, we have no direct information from wherever they went, but she comes back and says, I'm no longer married because my husband died. Um, so then she is, right, she, is, she is given halakhic credibility. In the absence of any counter evidence, she is entitled to, um, to remarry or to do evil if, that, if that's um, the, the, option, the, the other option. Um, however, if, if there is peace between the couple but war in the world, or strife among the couple and peace in the world, and she comes to Beijing and says, my husband died, then she is not given credibility. That is not sufficient to allow her to remarry. Rabbi Judah says, um, even if there is peace in, in, in the relationship and peace in the world, she's still not believed unless she came crying with her clothes torn. She has to present herself as a widow from the, uh, from the start. She can't come back and then a year later uh, tell us, oh, by the way, my husband died a, uh, husband died a year ago. Um, but the halacha is not like that because the Chachamim said Rabbi Yudah, this one and that one alike may marry. The credibility we give to the woman is not uh, affected by her other uh, her other behavior. Okay. Um, so the question is, why do we uh, why do we believe her? Since ordinarily we would require two male Shomer Shabbos witnesses, but let's just say two for now uh, witnesses in order to allow. Um, Personal status to change to allow it to remarry. And since we already, right, this is a woman who's already established previously as married, so it should require two male Shomer Shabbos witnesses to, um, to establish her as unmarried. So why is it that we believe her? Uh, Sir Bezerra offers, um, this is on Yvamos Peichet Amar Aleph, Bezerra offers one set of rationales. He says, so what does that mean? So we learn in the Mishnah that if a woman remarries on the basis of something other than, right, uh, that if a Beitin allows her to remarry, right, she's not doing it on her own, she's doing it with Beitin permission, but she remarries on the basis of testimony other than the two, wi- the, the two valid witnesses we ordinarily need. So then if it turns out that, um, that, the test, that her husband is actually alive, then... Um, she cannot remain married to her second husband. Uh, she's not married to her first husband. Her kids from the second husband uh, are Mamzerim. If she goes back to the first husband without a get from the second husband, then her kids are Mamzerim. Uh, her, ki- her kids from the first husband are Mamzerim. She gets the worst of all worlds. And because of the, 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 the horrors of the, of the consequences, she's wrong. Therefore, we can give her statement super credibility. Um, because the, right, right, we're, we trust that she would, the Gemara's term is daikim, right, we trust that she would in, investigate closely before remarrying. Um, right, so, right, so we, right, so, but we add chumras, um, in, right, we state chumras at the outset of the process, um, and because of the chumras we state at the outset of the process, then, therefore, we can reach meaning and conclusions in a practical case. So the Gemara says, like, why is it, right? Why is it worth imposing all these stringencies, 
um, just for the sake of that leniency? And the answer is because preventing ego, because it was necessary, it was felt necessary, or it was felt morally correct to allow such women to remarry rather than to um, leave the circumstance in such a way where there would be uh, more women whose husbands actually are dead but are not allowed to remarry. Okay, right, that's our, right, so our mechanism is that we do something that adds to the woman's credibility and, uh, and that enables us to believe her as if she were two witnesses. Uh, so now we can go back to the question of we, on, we still only believe her even with this only if there is peace in the relationship and peace in the world. So what are the reasons that, uh, right, what, what, what are the, how do those two phenomena, strife between them and strife in the world, um, weaken the uh, weaken the credibility that she's that she has gained uh, because of the consequences. And the answer is that if there's strife in the relationship, then we think that uh, that diminishes her credibility again, again her super credibility, uh, right? Because what the ordinary credibility of one witness would not be sufficient here. Uh, and secondly, if there's war in the world, then people are more likely to reach conclusions that someone is dead when they're not because People disappear in wartime and die in wartime without without witnesses. That's part of the nature of the game. So now the Gemara wants to wants to more precisely define what does it mean that uh, there's strife in the relationship, so we don't believe her. Heshi dami kata beino leveno. We're on Yevamos one sixteen a to b now. So the Gemara Shmuel says, if she said if she said to her husband, divorce me. So that seems like a very good common sense. Uh, definition of strife in the relationship. But the Gemara says somewhat comically uh, that Rebuda Amr could not possibly have said that because then every relationship would be seen as driven by strife. All women say their husbands at some point divorce me. That's not really not true. Um, I think that um, there is a relationship model in which you just, you know, you can't mention that word because that word Mention the word divorce, and that that utterly taints the relationship. But the Gemara says it, I think, really somewhat facetiously, uh, that that would that sets a standard for strife that would not accomplish our end of freeing a good note, because too many women whose husbands go off and die. Um, there was some occasion of real quarrels between them previously. The Gemara says rather gerashtani. It's not where she said to her husband, "Divorce me." Instead, she said to her husband. You have already divorced me, so that's the case where we won't. Where, that's the case where we won't believe her. Uh, so she's gone to the extreme claim of claiming that she's not married. Um, okay, so that, you know that's a weaker definition literally of katata, but the Gemara brings it in, I think, among other things, to meant for the answer. The Gemara says, "Hang on, no, that's a bad answer, because in that case, there's a there's a further reason to believe her, uh, even though there's strife." And the reason is a statement of Rafuna, of Hamnuna, sorry. A woman who says to her husband, you have divorced me, is believed. Why? Chazaka, there's our magic word. A woman does not have brazenly lie, lie chutzpahically, in the presence of her husband, specifically to say that he's not her husband. So therefore, if a woman says to a man who was known to have previously been her husband, you divorced me, then surely she should believe, because that's about as chutzpahic a lie as you can get. So that can't be the case of uh, katata either, of, of strife either, because then we would believe her. The Gemara concludes with a very, very narrow case. So merit, 
Yerushtani bifnei koni koni, ushilna ve'amru lahayud v'rein me'olam. It's a case where she said to her husband, you divorced me, and here are the witnesses that you divorced me. And then we go ask those witnesses, and they say no. So the, the case of Sprite, where we don't believe her, is limited to a case where she has already falsely and falsifiably, right? She has claimed, claimed not to be married to him, and she has turned out to be a brazen liar. So, okay, that, right, that's, a, that's right. If a woman has already lied about the same thing that you're trying to give her credibility about now, um, and that lie, and, and that lie has you know, been caught and and fully established. That's you know that's a very extreme case. And if we establish that as the um, as the only case of the um, of the uh, Mishnah, or the sta- or even as the standard for the case of the Mishnah, that the that um, the case where we don't believe her is where that right, is where she has done something. Uh, she has already made a false claim of not being of not being married and had that false claim um, disproven. So then, in the vast majority of cases, uh, we will in fact believe her. Um, okay, so the Gemara, right? So the Gemara um, then goes to the rationales like, why is it right, why we don't believe her again? Well, there's two reasons. Maybe she would lie. Maybe she would um, she would extrapolate some circumstances instead of knowing about it. Um, distinction is whether. Um, Distinction of whether uh, with who started the quarrel. Okay, not a, not our issue, uh, very much in the the rest of the Gemara. Fine. What we've established is that there is um, that there are circumstances right, in which we believe a woman, um, and specifically we believe a woman um, uh, when she says to right, when she says to her husband, "You have divorced me." Um, because of a chazaka about human nature, so if the Rav's claim is correct, we should say that there is nothing that could uh, change our belief that women would not lie in front of their husbands, and therefore there's nothing that can change the halacha of a woman who claims to a man known to have previously been her husband, right, in his presence, you have divorced me, such a woman must be given credibility. How does halacha actually play out? So in um, Shulchan Aruch Ebena Ezer, so we have a, a, a case in which the uh, a woman implicitly says, you have divorced me, because she's in the presence of known past husband number one, and man number two uh, off, right, offers her a ring and says, and she accepts the ring, in token of marriage, and she indicates so that indicates that she believes herself to be married to man, to man number two. So we believe it because that's tantamount to saying in front of her husband, "You have divorced me." And Chazaka Eni Sham Bala. And so the Shulchan just quotes the halacha. On that, the Ramah says, uh, some people say, Some people say that when we believe her, all, we don't believe her to say that she's free to remarry. And that she doesn't need to get from the other person, or to actually live as a, as a wife with another man. We just believe her to say that she needs to get from the second man too. Um, but she's not married. To, but she's not believed to the extent of uh, remarrying, um, or to collect money from the right to collect her, her divorce settlement or ktuba. And some people disagree and say no, she's believed all the way. That's the position of the Rama. That's the position that interests us. Some people say further, Yabizman Hazeh, nowadays, now nowadays at the time as we're talking, yeah, we're just 
although it's, the Rama is saying in Shulchan Aruch, he's quoting um, earlier sources going back to the Marami Rutenberg, um, right? So he's quoting century, from several centuries earlier. Um, where brazenness is and lewdness are rampant, and so we no longer um, we no longer believe have the same give the same um, credibility to our in, intrinsic credibility to, to say that people would not violate the laws of uh, would not be willing to commit halachic adultery or would not be willing to be chutzpah, right? Women would not be willing to be chutzpah to their husbands. So nowadays we only believe her, her, her We only believe her in order to acquire a get from the from the man who who uh, who gave her the ring. Um, whereas previously we would have believed her all the way. Why? Right, because that chazaka that women don't are not brazen in the, to the face of someone who actually is a halachic husband has been weakened. How can a chazaka be weakened? Um, so as long as they're based on you know eternal claims of human nature, and probably the same pasuk in Bereshis, right, this Chazaka, if I wanted to read it in the Chumash, I would say it's probably rooted in the same pasuk that the Rav quoted for Tav Tav. And yet, the Ramah says, the Isra Chazaka Eina Meiza, and that becomes just standard halacha, right? We think that uh, although the Gemara says that the Chazaka Eini Shem Meiza Fanav is made by Allah, that women won't do this, nowadays that's just not true. I think that's pretty straightforward. Um, this even uses the term chazaka. It has all the, the characteristics of the kind of chazaka that I was talking about. And you know what? Society changes, and the language that Shulchan Aruch uses, the Isra chazaka, it's weakened. Um, now, again, it doesn't have to mean that he thinks that human nature has changed. It's just that um, human behavior, um, right, however rooted in, in deep ontological truths, is different, and therefore the law changes. Um, I, I frankly don't understand, you know, don't, don't really understand how the Rav could have made the statement he made in the context of that year. Uh, I think it has to be really dismissed as hyperbole. Uh, there's a place which I can never find again in Zakshay um, Panecha, Rav Sabato's record of his interviews with Elifenstein. Elifenstein said that sometimes the Rav got um, carried away by his own rhetoric uh, on occasion. And I felt much better um, when I read that because it meant I could say it about this without um, feeling that you know that I was uh, um, being chutzpahic to the rough. Um, and I think there's just you know I think it just has to be understood as hyperbole, and therefore I feel entitled to um, to you know, to stand strongly behind the thesis of my book, which is that halacha is always affected by human experience. Okay. Now let's uh, turn to how this halacha plays out um, in in Rav Moshe Feinstein. Uh, but in order to get there, I think we have to we have to do a couple of more steps. Shulchan Aruch and Tosfos as the background, and I think we'll learn something about the way in which halacha functions, not just in the area of Agunot, um, along the way. So there's another there's Shulchan Aruch forty six Ethim later than the one we quoted above seventeen two. Now we're going to quote Evan Ezra seventeen forty eight. Um, here, the Shulchan is quoting uh, a Gemara that we saw in Yevamos. What does it mean? Uh, Shalom, right, when do we believe a woman who says, my husband has died, when she comes back alone from foreign um, climb? Um, when there's the Shalom ben Olavina, when there's peace between them, the Shalom ben Olavina, peace in the world, but if there's strife, 
She said, uh, right in her husband's presence, you divorce me in front of witnesses A and B, and witnesses A and B say, nope, never happened. And now the Ramah inserts something. Ramah says, Or if, that her, if her husband apostatized and left her as an aguna, that serves the same purpose as a quarrel between them. Uh, or the, the same the same purpose as her saying, you divorced me and being falsified. So the question is, in what way does it serve the same purpose if um, if her husband apostatized and left her in Aguna for years? And um, why does that diminish her credibility in the same way as her having been caught in a flat-out lie? Right? So that's not obvious at all. But the Ramah inserts the Salacha that, uh, that if a... Um, that if a man apostatizes and lets his wife in Aguna for years, then she is not believed um, if she says he died and there is uh, and there's no corroborating evidence, even if there is also no contrary evidence. So by that, we're going to leave that as a question for now. Like, why is that? Why is that? Why does that accomplish the same thing? And does that? I guess the deeper issue for us is the Gemara really, really narrowed the parameters under which we would not believe her and said we really will believe her in almost every case. It doesn't matter how terrible the relationship was. It's only if she has explicitly lied previously in an attempt to um, be legally, be formally permitted by the legal authorities to commit what is in fact adultery. Um, so what is a comp, right? So is that narrowing undone by this, uh, by this line in the Ramah. Okay, so another thing you have to learn is, like, where do we, uh, is the Gemara in Yavamos, again, back on 116b, the Gemara Shmuel tells a story. It's a very odd story. He says it was the end of the wheat harvest, and ten people went to um, harvest wheat, and a snake bit one of them, and the one of them that was bitten by the snake died, and then his woman, his, his wife came, and um, and told the Beitin, by the way, my husband is dead. And the Beitin, right, the Nashchona Nachash Lechadman, the mate Uvata Ishto Vehodia Lebeitin, Vesholchu, and the Beitin sends a an inquisitor, or whatever, you know, an investigator, to see whether her report that her husband is dead is true. Umasufidvara, and they find out that um, she is telling the truth. At that time, when they discovered that she had told the truth, they said the following. They said, okay, woman says her, says her husband has died. We believe her. Um, so this, the connection between that really broad conclusion and the story is not clear at all. Um, because first of all, the point is, right, so they bear so one woman once said that her husband was dead, and right, and we verified it, and therefore all women are always telling the truth. That's a really odd thing to understand. We don't really understand what the story is about at all, right? Why does it matter that ten men went to the uh, went to the wheat field? Um, why aren't the other nine men coming back to us who didn't die and saying right, and, and corroborating the woman's story as to as to who died? Um, right, it's a lot of mystery. Right? Why do we care that it's a wheat field? Where seems to me likely there's a there's um, a historical event um, that we're just not aware of and that somehow the, this has been lost. So what we need to focus on is just the the outcome, which is that she told the truth in that case, 
they corroborated it, and therefore they decided to believe women in the future without corroboration. What, what generally did that mean? So Tosfut uh, on the page says the following. They saw that there would be many agunas had they not believed her. So what does that line mean? It seems to me that what it means, and I, I think this is what the Maharik says in um, in his Shiva, uh, in the middle of a very, very long Shiva number 72, that it's not that we learn from the corroboration that sh- that women are always telling the truth. It's that the rabbis who sent the investigator realize, you know what, that was a lucky case because corroboration was available. Why? Because he was, let's say, because he was with a group of ten men, right, and therefore it was easy to get corroboration as to which of them had died because there were nine others still alive. But people sometimes go to harvest wheat by themselves and get bitten by snakes. And what are we supposed to do for women um, whose husbands uh, whose husbands really die? But it's not easy to get corrobor- corroborative evidence. So the Marik says is that what mattered about, if I understand it correctly, what mattered about that story is not that they, that they learned that women are credible. Of course some women tell are telling the truth when they say their husbands died. What it, something about that case made them realize how grave a risk there was that there would be women who would tell the truth and not be able to find corroborate, corroborating evidence and therefore remain agunas. Um, okay, so it's not a it's not a claim that I guess this is right the issue that I think one has to address in the context of of Marik and Tosus is it seems to me that this is a different kind of argument than the argument that we made previously uh, about giving the woman super credibility, right? So we said that because we add up all those, we, we, give, all, we give all those punishments up front, therefore we, right, therefore we believe the woman um, when, right, um, because we believe that she really would have investigated. But here I think Tosfut is recognizing no matter what we do, we have to understand that if we're going to believe testimony of an interested party, and I think this is part of a much broader complex, right? This and we'll, right that it's not only we believe the women, we believe hearsay, we believe hearsay evidence that's going to matter to us, um, right? We believe we believe non-Jews at least under certain circumstances, and, and otherwise invalid witnesses. In general, we relax all the standards of credibility in our Guinea cases. So why do we do that? So there are two different mechanisms. One thing we do is we try and actually uh, enhance the likelihood that a woman is telling the truth. The other thing we say is, you know what, there's a trade-off here, inevitably, that if we raise the standards of credibility, it's not like there's a, it's, a, it's not like there's no cost to that. The cost of that is that there will be women who, in fact, are, are widows and are, and, are, and are unable to remarry. So what, right, so it, we have a right. So, it doesn't mean that we believe all women. That will end up right. That will end up first of all harming them, harming women who are believed and it turns out to be false and can have all sorts of societal implications. But it means that we recognize that we can't achieve perfection. And then the really interesting move is recognizing that we can't achieve perfection. So, 
let's grant that, um, right? So let's grant that we say that, you know what, sometimes when there's no corroboration, we'll do whatever we can to ensure that women are telling the truth, and then we'll believe them, even though we know that some of them inevitably are, um, are lying. Um, but now there's, there's, a, there's an easy way out, which is to say, okay, but we'll only, or at least a way to limit this by saying, we'll only believe the woman when she says her husband is dead. Uh, if we try to find corroborating uh, evidence, or, or if we tried to find a contradictory evidence, and if we failed to find any other relevant evidence, so then we won't leave her that way. But we don't, right, we're not going to feel a, a sense of urgency. Let's figure out what is the time period after which we we'll say, you know what, if we have found no contradictory evidence, uh, then we have to allow her to remarry. So you know, in America, I think, for many years, I don't know if it's still true, there were, there were rules in the States that if your husband vanished for seven years, right, he could be, you could, he could be presumed dead. Uh, there might be Yerushalmi in one place that suggests uh, something like that. But that's a pretty long period of time, seven years. Um, so, right, we could read the Gemara as saying that they investigated, and they realized, okay, look, we, so right, if our investigation had come up empty, we would still have to we would still have to um, to free her. But the language is not like that. The language is much more that we decided to believe her immediately and to forgo corroboration. So that, I think, will uh, will bring us to uh, the Moshe Feinstein. What we're, we're doing is um, uh, it is Moshe um, where is it? It's, it's on, uh, if you're following on the card sheet, we're moving now to um, Moving to page six, uh, source number ten. This is Igor's Moshe Evan Ezer, a one forty-nine. Uh, this Shuvah of Moshe is uh, from it's Kodesh Sivan fifty-six ninety-five, so in the nineteen thirties, and it's um, it's from Luban. Luban is the city uh, where where Rav Moshe was the um, was the rabbi uh, before coming to America. Moshe was born in 1895, so he's not such a young man uh, when this when this Shuvah is written. He's right around 40. Um, according to the biography at the beginning of Volume 8 of Igor Moshe, written by uh, his son-in-law and uh, grandson, uh, Moshe had you know, many had you know, extensive writings, but uh, from Luban, but most of them were sadly lost in transport. Um, so we only have, you know, we have a limited number of Shuvot that are still uh, from Luban, um, either that he had or that people preserved copies of what he had sent to them. And my tentative you know, suggestion based on experience is that those Shuvot are very important and that it's very likely that by his late 30s, Rav Moshe had come up with most of the great principles upon which he had, he had built his stock and maybe, maybe even most of his Chidushim. Uh, you can find specific Shuvot from Luban that you can then find trace all the way through his Shuvot. You can see that he's fond of the principles he came out of Luban. He likes referring to them. So I think that studying a Shuvot from Luban is not just about studying that Shuvot, but it's likely um, that it addresses a theme that will play out all the way in Rav Moshe's work. Uh, this was written to Rav Yitzchak Hochmark, who's the rabbi of Slutsk. Uh, as is almost always the case in Igor's Moshe, we have Rav Moshe's answer, but he doesn't print the question. And he also doesn't, um, which many other Shuvot do, provide his own summary of the facts. So we just have the letter, uh, or at least uh, that we wrote, that we wrote to, to Rabbi Hachmark, and we have to try and backform the case based on what Rav Moshe says to Rabbi Hachmark. Uh, so here's what he um, begins by saying. 
it's clear to me uh, that if there is a witness, or even if she herself says uh, right, that, uh, that she received a letter from her brother in which it said that her husband was dead, then there's no reason to have any doubt and, um, and we should commit her because all, all we need is to have somebody in the chain of evidence because we accept hearsay testimony somebody in the chain of evidence say definitely that the husband is dead and it says Rabbi Hachmark, you seem to be suggesting that the Beitin has to have certainty that the husband is dead right? It's not all, right, I, don't, I don't find it utterly incomprehensible what you wrote it's only when the Beitin is, uh, is of its own knowledge completely certain of the husband's death. Right? So the way Rehachmark seems to conceptualize Hilchot Aguna is if the Beitin establishes circumstantially, intuitively, the husband must be dead. So then we relax the formal rules of evidence, and we say it's enough to have certainty without the formal rules of evidence. So if there was a case where Achmark wasn't convinced, he would say, okay, look, right, so there's nothing that forces me to accept, the, to accept normally invalid testimony. I'm just permitted to accept invalid testimony. But Moshe says, that's completely wrong. Um, right, he says, how would the, right, the Beitin doesn't have witnesses, so on what basis could the Beitin reach that certainty? Rather, as Moshe says, is all the Beitin can evaluate is whether in the chain of evidence there is somebody saying that the husband is dead, and if that's and even if that statement occurs in a letter, and we don't have access to the person who made it, and even if the person doesn't state how the person died, if there's just a statement the person died, somewhere along the line, then the, the job of Beitin, says Rav Moshe, is... Um, is just to say, okay, so that is as true as two witnesses would be true for us, or maybe even truer. Right? So says, if the if the witness says clearly that the husband is dead, as Srichin Beitin Hatira below Pikuk. The Beitin has to permit her without qualms. Because we need nothing more and nothing is um, nothing is lacking. If the Witness says something which is uncertain. I saw him dying. That's different. But as long as the letter says he's dead, that's it, Rav Moshe says. There is no more investigation needed. You have to permit her immediately, meaning that there is no basis for saying that you should investigate further. Um, right, then he goes on, that, right, then he goes on and he, um, he does something that will sound sort of like the Rav, all the very thing that... Um, that um, that the Ramah said Isra Chazaka, we have to be subtle, be careful, and say exactly what he's talking about, and he's and he's reaching an exactly obvious uh, opposite conclusion, because right? the Rav said you can't change the Chazaka, and so there are women who are stuck being unable uh, right, mis- right in marriages because um, we can't undo them uh, without a get, and Rav Moshe he says that because the Chazaka hasn't changed, we can still believe women. Um, uh, but we'll have to figure out exactly which chazaka, right? So let's watch how he does it. Uh, he says, the other thing that you, another thing you wrote, Rabbi Hachmark, you said that since the Ramah wrote that nowadays there are lots of women who are chutzpahdik and licentious, therefore we no longer believe women uh, 
to permit them to remarry if a woman says uh, to her husband, to her at least past husband's face, you have divorced me. Uh, the Kalvachomeradvarim. So the Rabbi Hachmer say, look, if, if the Ramallah said that, then all the more so in this case with the woman he's talking about who's right, is claiming that she received a, a letter from her brother saying her husband had died. And will the, will the other facts in the letter suggest that uh, her husband has been mi- had been missing for 20 years before she got the letter from her brother saying that he died? And it seems to me that probably the claim was that the brother um, her brother died fairly late, at least fairly late in that in that period. Uh, Rabbi Moshe says, the note, right? It, it sounds like what you're saying. Mashmi lashon kvotarasa, the sober that you hold to bismanaze ena isha neminet lamar meit bala. It sounds to me like you, Rachmark, are saying is, look, if the Ramah said that we no longer believe women when they claim that their husband divorced them because there's all that chispa and priestess, so certainly nowadays, Rachmark says, we wouldn't believe women who say that their husband has died. Now, why would Rachmark say that? So the answer, I think, is because we're, right, we're, we're dealing with communist, uh, communist Russia, and there are two features of Stalinist, Stalinist Russia that matter to us. One is that people disappear. It may not be wartime in the 30s, uh, early, right, where we are now, or right, Hitler hasn't invaded yet, but it's a situation in which people often uh, often disappear and they're still alive, or they wander off somewhere, right, they're held in the gulag somewhere, incommunicado. So you could easily argue that this is a case just like the case of the um, of Nuhama. And secondly, uh, the Soviet Union is right under is an atheist state, and so belief has been you know, lo- belief in the importance and the 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 actuality of halacha has been sadly radically diminished among the population, and therefore women are much more likely to lie, if they think they can get away with it. Right? If, if they think that that the, it will not be discovered that the husband is actually alive, so we shouldn't give women the same the same credibility we gave them in the past. Because their relationship to their belief, right, their fear of actually committing adultery, they're not so worried that um, that they're going to you know, burn a gannon forever because they're because they're committing adultery. So we have Mark you know, says Kalvachomer, right? You know, obviously, we can we see that Chazakas changed, and that Chazaka changed, and therefore we no longer believe women who say right, who say their husband who, their husband has divorced them and. The bases on which Chazal said we can believe women who say the husband is dead have eroded at least as much. Rav Moshe says, What you're saying is not even in the bounds of Halakhic discourse. It can't be said at all. And it's obvious now, it's obvious that, that women are believed when they say her husband has died now, um, so long as they meet all the standards that were there in the time of the Gemara. And it's proof of this. Look, when we talk about the woman being believed, the Ramah makes no comment. Um, so that's an interesting claim. The Ramah makes no comment. Sure, because maybe the Ramah, it wasn't true in the Ramah's time that uh, women would lie that the husband had died, but our time is, right, our time is not the same. Um, but Ramosha says, right, so it's obviously the Ramah agrees that we believe her when she says made Bali. Good. Nobody disagrees. Fine. And we've found this in many um, responses. It's still assumed that we believe that women are telling the truth. 
So I could be Ramosh understanding what Hachmark is saying, that the chusna and prisusa those women claim that they are divorced, obviously also means that women are willing to say false things uh, for the sake of committing adultery. So when it comes to saying to my husband that my that my husband has that my husband has died, so we don't even have the chazaka. As women are always willing to lie right about their husband being dead because their husband's not present. So if we if women are willing to lie in their husband's presence, they're gonna be willing to lie um not in their husband's presence. So the Ramaz argument should have applied even then. So Ramosha says no, the Ramaz argument didn't right then certainly didn't apply because Ramad didn't apply it and we find Achronim. Everyone thinks we still believe the woman who claims that her husband is dead, even in an environment we don't claim a woman who uh, we don't believe a woman who claimed uh, to her husband's face that um, that you divorced me. Okay, interesting argument. Um, and Ramosha then says, look, and you know by the way your analogy doesn't work at all because. Over there, he says, the only reason we believed, right, over there, the point is that she says you divorced me to her husband, so there is counter-testimony. There's her husband saying, no, I didn't. It's not right. So the two cases are totally not parallel, because the case where the Ramad says that we no longer believe her is because uh, we no longer believe her against her husband. But in the case of death, there's no contrary testimony. And, um, right, and so we don't need the extra, right, the the claim that women don't li- that women don't um, don't commit lies is only needed because we have to um, counter the husband's claim uh, that she's still married to him. But when we don't have the husband's claim, then we don't need the the super claim of a chazaka that she doesn't have chutzpah either. We can just say we believe her because she investigates. Um, um, right, Rabbi Moshe says the reason we believe women right women about your husband is dead. Um, so, right, so we had said that we have the penalty, we investigate, uh, but even if it's... Um, and moreover, it says there's a general principle that people don't lie about things that can be falsified, that are likely to that are likely to come untrue. And so the reason we, we believe women uh, who say their husband is dead because they can't take the chance of their husband coming back alive uh, women, because nobody likes to, to claim that... Um, to claim things which are likely to be found out false. But again, I think Rabbi Hachmark could be um, could argue that you know what, but there are cases where you know it's not going to come back alive. It's not really going to come. It's not really going to. Um, the truth is not really going to come out because it's very hard to get accurate information about somebody from the gulag, or uh, it might be that she knows that her husband has no interest in being found. Uh, he's he's happily living a second life somewhere else, just like an apostate, right? and that. Could have easily have been an argument. Moshe says, "Don't tell me anything about the apostate." Moving on, um, moving on um, to uh, to the last page of the card, the page eight. Moshe says, "No, I think that the correct understanding of the Rama is that there are only two cases where we don't believe the woman, which are parallel to right. One, one is um, one is the case where she says, "You divorced me," with witnesses." Um, and the witnesses claim it's not true, and the other is the case where the husband has apostatized. That's the Red Ramaz only saying that case, and he's not interested in analogies to cases um, other like it. And Ramosha goes further, right? So the language that the Ramaz says is, or he apostatized and left her in Aguna. So you might think that uh, any time the husband has shown that he's willing to leave the wife in Aguna, that counts as strife between them, and therefore. We shouldn't right. We shouldn't believe her, um, and that's exactly what happened here. The husband 
right? The husband has banished for 20 years and left her in Aguna. So the Moshe says, no, the, um, the absolutely, unless it's the specific case of, uh, right, of apostasy, we don't care that, um, we don't care that he left her, that he left, that he left her in Aguna. Uh, and then Ramosha says, okay, but what about, why don't we at least try to investigate, right? All we have is her claim that she saw a letter from her, right? That she saw a letter from her brother. Why don't we send the messenger to her? But she says the husband died. Uh, so here Ramosha says, no, you're not allowed to do that. The only case, in his, right, there's a Shuvah the Rabbaz where he did require such an investigation, but guess what? That's not the, um, that's not the, um, that's, the case in the Rabbaz, if you look it up, is exactly the case of the Gemara, where she had previously claimed to be divorced in front of witnesses, and the witnesses, um, and the witnesses said that uh, she had lied. So that that tells us nothing about ordinary cases. The Moshe says, in this case, you have to free her immediately without further investigation. Um, right? And he gives a uh, right. His, his language is very is very powerful. Um, the um. So that even even making her an aguna for a short period of time, that counts as a, as egun as well. And you can't make her an aguna even for a period of time, maybe even for a moment, um, in order to satisfy your qualms, because we have enough. And right, and the halacha is set up that as soon as she says she's dead, we believe her. And then Rav Moshe says, and all the more so. If right now we discover this must have been the case in the actual case, if she has a husband who is waiting um, until it's clarified that the husband she has a a, a beau she has a right she has a, a fiance whatever who wants to marry her now, um, and he does not want to wait um, while this is um, while the investigation is proceeding, in uh, that's just absolute egun that they can't get married now. And you don't need any further investigation. So that's also right, you know, um, a very strong, you know, interesting claim because you could claim that you know, what we have here is motive, right? Why, why would she lie now? Why is she suddenly introducing this claim? Because she has someone she wants to marry. So, right? And what, what, what right does she have to have entered into a relationship with somebody until a Beitin has come along and verified that she's free, that she's free to remarry? But the motion says no. We don't treat the fiancé as a weakness, uh, giving her a motive to lie. We treat it as a motivation for us, uh, that we have an obligation to uh, we have an obligation to free her. So the question is, like, what is going on in this Shuvah of Moshe, where he makes arguments that um, are, I guess, defensible, but not obvious. Uh, certainly not obvious, probably not more, more likely than not, in a, if we're just looking at the, uh, at the narrow evidence, um, as to whether... Circumstances have changed such that the credibility in this case, uh, that's where the credibility of women saying that in in the Soviet Union in the 1930s that uh, their husbands have dead are dead, right? Sort of half mark seems to think it's obvious that too many women would lie, and Rav Moshe's response is formal, uh, right? That none of the factors which allow us to consider whether the woman is telling the truth exists. Um, and so we must treat her as telling the truth, even uh, if we are not convinced of this independently. So what's really the argument between Rabbi Hachmark and Rabbi Feinstein about? Um, so I think, first of all, you can see that Rabbi Moshe has this enormous sensitivity, sensitivity to the psychological cost of being held prisoner, even for a moment, right? You can't be ma'agin or afil and that's without the question, right? Even if, 
even if you don't have someone waiting to marry you, there's someone waiting to marry you more than a red light. The Ramosha has enormous sensitivity to this, and I want to argue that's because there's a fundamental sensitivity to the importance of certain kinds of human freedom. Um, we could talk about whether Ramosha would extend that freedom necessarily in the same way that I or you uh, would, whether that whether the concept of freedom would be the same in all cultures, but the fundamental idea that it's wrong to hold people in relationships more than absolutely necessary. I think that comes out loud and clear in Rav Moshe. The second thing I would say is that the the most the way I think that Rav Moshe makes the most sense is if you think of the question for him as not, is it true that women are more likely to lie now than they were many, many years ago about this? And... Right, if that's the case, is really making a contrafactual claim, the equivalent of the Rav's Chazakas can't change. That seems really implausible to me in this area, because Moshe concedes that the other Chazaka changed, so why can't this one? Uh, but he concedes that the Chazaka about Chutzpah changed, so why can't the Chazaka about lying about death change? Rather, I think what it is, is that Moshe understood that if you allowed this to happen, if you allowed rabbis to say, well, we don't trust our women nowadays, then there will be many, many agudot. We're back in the position of um, of Tosfos, that we look at and say, you know what, yeah, there's a risk here that we're going to um, allow some women to remarry whose husbands are actually alive, and we'll never find out about it. But there's also a risk that we'll hold many people prisoner um, for when, when they don't need to be prisoners. And so we say, you know what, we have to the the risk of creating more uh, more innocent agunot uh, is too great is so great that it enables us to accept women's testimony even if it is less credible than it was in the past. Um, I think that you, you know, that you get to see uh, the interplay between formalism and um, and substance here. I don't think Rav Moshe's position is that the Chazaka can't change, his position is that the calculus we use as to how much credibility we need um, is, effect, is affected by, um, that we, when we apply the Talacha, is affected not just by the credibility, but also by the consequences. Um, but we here we have to put in one um, caveat, that Ramosha, um, in other Trivot, expresses an absolute belief that a genuine Talmud Chacham deciding the question of an Aguna, deciding an Aguna case, this kind of Aguna case, whether the husband is alive or not, in good faith, in accordance with the process, uh, Moshe believes that God would never allow that person's, um, that person to make a factual error, and therefore, if someone comes back claiming to be the husband, they're not. Um, right? If, some, if witnesses produce, show up saying the husband's really alive, they must be lying, because because God protects those um, acting in good faith in the system. Um, so now, I think Rav Moshe genuinely believes that. And so the question that used to obsess us as the modern Orthodox halachic thinkers is, can we reach the same conclusions as Rav Moshe, even if we don't have the same absolute faith that God will protect us from errors? Um, or maybe because, or if we just don't have enough faith in ourselves to be the kind of with the kind of sincerity of Moshe is talking about. Um, so I think the answer is yes. That, um, that Moshe's understanding of halacha is that you are allowed to take those risks. 
In addition to that, right, when the cases came up, he would he, right, he would then argue, and if we took the risks properly, then actually it turned out not to be a risk, even if we didn't. Um, but I don't think that's necessary for the, for the underlying argument. The underlying argument is that halacha is affected by human experience, so statements in the Gemara about credibility are subject to uh, analysis to see if they've been affected by social change. But the human experience halacha takes into account is not just the um, the experiences that drive evaluations of particular of uh, credibility, but also outcomes. And right, then the goal is freedom. Uh, women should not women should not be unfree to marry when in fact they are free to marry. The law the law can't make that kind of error. Uh, it's immoral for the law to make that kind of error. And therefore, Moshe is willing to use formal principles of credibility, even if the basis for the credibility has eroded somewhat, if the consequences have um, become correspondingly worse. Okay, thank you very much um, for listening. I'm sorry that this is not the, um, the live recording, uh, which I think, uh, I think I benefit from having um, real people I need to explain things to, and the questions are great and expanded. Uh, so I look forward, hope that you'll join us um, in uh, for next week's class, which will be about the question of whether it's true that uh, we cannot uh, make rabbinic legislation, um, new new rabbinic legislation, in order to cover areas of human experience. Obviously, you know that will deal with um, obvious questions in terms of technology that did not exist in the time of Chazal.